Since the Berlin Wall fell some 30 years ago, much has happened in the formerly communist countries. In general, those countries that pursued the fastest, most comprehensive reform achieved the best results in terms of growth, improvements in living standards, and stronger institutions. Reform laggards like Russia or Belarus or Ukraine performed poorly by many measures, including civil and political rights. I consider Central Europe and the Baltics to be largely a success story. The region implemented far-reaching economic and political liberalization at the same time to create market democracies in a very short period of time. It in this included uh, reform stars like Estonia, Poland, and the Czech Republic. But in recent years, we've also seen the rise of populist and nationalist po <coughs> politics, not just among reform laggards, but also in Central European countries like Poland and Hungary, and indeed in Western Europe itself, making it a serious uh, political issue for the European Union. This too represents a sort of transition, only not uh, one that is a transition from socialism to the market, but rather one that moves countries away from greater economic and other freedoms. Understanding these transitions is a challenge for all of us, especially so for advocates of liberal democracy. That's why I'm pleased to be able to, to host today one of the most insightful observers of and one of the most consequential participants in the great changes that have uh, gone <coughs> over, that have shaped Europe in the past several decades. Lesik Valserowicz was a deputy prime minister and finance minister of Poland when the Soviet bloc fell. And under his leadership, Poland became the first radical reformer in the region among the ex-socialist countries, putting the nation on a path toward growth and political stability. He has since served in those positions in the late 1990s and subsequently as the head of the Central Bank, where his policies were largely responsible for Poland being the only country in the EU to avoid the 2009 recession. Because of his contributions to freedom in Poland and beyond, the Cato Institute awarded Dr. Balcerowicz the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty in the year 2014. He is currently a professor at uh, Warsaw School of Economics. He heads, uh, he, he heads the, uh, the uh, think tank on uh, civil reform and is a prominent liberal uh, a liberal voice in Poland's public policy debate. Please help me welcome Professor Lesik Balcerowicz. Thank you very much. In my professional life, I've dealt with monetary issues, fiscal issues, but first of all, with institutions or institutional systems for the simple reasons that large differences in this system are the most important determinant of large differences in the standard of living, <coughs> broadly defined. <coughs> and there are some interesting comparisons. There are countries like North and South Korea, which used to be equally poor in the 50s. And then North Korea has 7% of South Korean per capita income. <coughs> Less drastic, but still, Amazing differences have appeared between East and West Germany. Poland and Spain 
1950, we have about the same per capita income. In 1990, we have only 42%. <clears throat> so what is behind these huge differences which appeared in a relatively short time? It is not location. It is not climate. It is not culture in the sense of informal norms. First of all, there are huge differences in institutional systems. And this is why studying these differences, studying these systems and their impact upon <clears throat> standard of living and studying the changes, it's one of the most important subjects in social sciences. And I think still it is under research. Now, uh, I start with this two stylish facts <clears throat> regarding the transition. <clears throat> transition, regarding the dynamics of systems. The dynamic of a system depends on its nature. And I would oppose, I would contrast two kinds of a system. The one which have a real life manifestation, I'm coming to this, it's called socialism communist, was characterized by the total concentration of power, political power. And it could be foreseen, it produced very bad economic results. But it has lasted. The Soviet Union has lasted for what, seven to eight years. So why it has lasted? Naive question. <laughs> it has lasted, because, has lasted because of intimidation. And intimidation can, can work over even a longer time, despite very bad economic and other outcomes. So this is an example of a very bad system on all the possible measures, including bad standard of living, but also fear vis-a-vis -vis the state. Contrast this with a system when power is well dispersed, which presumes freedom rights, <coughs> well protected. Call it free market economy plus rule of law <coughs> regime. <coughs> we know from vast experience that these systems tend to perform much better. <coughs> Does it guarantee that they last? Is superior economic performance uh, sufficient conditions for these superior systems to last? Not necessarily. They are not threatened from outside. They are threatened from inside by various interest groups. Anti-liberal or anti-freedom interest groups, we know from vast literature and history that they may be divided into a commercial one, but they are also very aggressive, ideological, anti-freedom interest group. We can undermine the system. We turn it into the worst one. <clears throat> and we are watching it now in some countries. Of course, the conclusion is defend. Bad things cannot defend themselves. Good ideas require very good and massive communication. Without that, they would lose in the society. <clears throat> now, this is a more extended technology of institutional systems. I think you need at least four dimensions along to show the differences. And I start with something which is called socialism. Other people prefer the word communism. The essence is the same. The primary feature is a total elimination of economic freedom 
by replacing private ownership by the monopoly of state ownership and markets by central planning or commands and rationing. Now, uh, despite many, many illusions which existed in 19th century, 20th century, and they persist to this day, this system cannot perform otherwise than very bad. So it produces bad results. But it's not sufficient for this system to collapse immediately because of, as I mentioned, intimidation. So what would be the most important institution of such a system? Political police. KGB in Soviet Union and its counterparts in other countries, which thought there is no room for liberty rights, meaning civil rights, no economic freedom. There is some room for social rights because dictators like to distribute money <coughs> and to be popular. <coughs> and of course, there is no room for democracy in the sense of competitive elections because opposition is de deprived of existence and uh, under threat of criminal and other punishment. And we still have real-life counterparts of this system, like North Korea or Cuba, and they are not, su not supported from outside very much. They are still exist because of internal structures. <clears throat> now, uh, contrast this system, as I said, with the well-dispersed uh, uh, political power, <clears throat> and then you come to the conclusion which may be very obvious, but still worth uh, repeating and remembering that the best system <clears throat> which performs better on economy may persist, and bad economic performance is not sufficient to bring immediate collapse, even though it contributed. It contributed in real history without uh, a growing economic weakness in the former Soviet Union, probably there would not be Gorbachev reforms. He played a very important and positive role in dismantling the system, according, I think, to his, contrary to his initial intentions. <laughs> but it's a positive for freedom. And I think in Poland's transition in 1989, after solidarity movement was suppressed at the end of uh, 81, if not for growing political economic weakness, there would be less willingness for them communist authorities to negotiate with solidarity movement, which resulted in the beginning of Poland's transition. But let me come to the small developed typology of the systems, and I would like to draw your attention, first of all, I characterize uh, socialism or communism. Let me only make one digression. I've noticed that some people are in love with the word socialism. And for them, socialism cannot denote anything bad. It has to be good. So they say, socialism did not exist in the former Soviet Union. It was not socialism. So what was socialism? Then they imply that socialism is defined by a large welfare state. This is the implicit definition of socialism. But if this is the definition, manipulated definition of socialism, uh, this is something we can't bet. Then all the Western economies are already socialist, including the United States. 
It is a cliche that U.S. does not have welfare state. Look at the data. U.S., the percentage of social transfers as a percentage of GDP in the U.S. is higher than in Switzerland. It's higher than slightly larger than in Canada. So according to this manipulative definition, all the Western countries have already socialists, which shows, of course, that this is an absurd definition. So we have to stick the original one, meaning total socialism, total concentration of political power, including power of the economy, which requires dictatorship, unavoidably. Democratic socialism is a misnomer. <clears throat> now, it happens that the bad systems collapse even though it is extremely difficult to foretell. foretell. Uh, and uh, I don't know anybody who have foretold exact timing and way in which the Soviet Union dissolved. Uh, we started a bit earlier, <laughs> but still it was unexpected. <laughs> but uh, instead of trying to forecast what is very difficult to foresee, it's better to prepare, meaning prepare blueprints for the window of opportunity so that you are ready and do not need to completely improvise. And such a co collapse happened, fortunately, between 89 and 91 in the former Soviet Union. In Poland, we started area. And then we have a living laboratory. I am coming now what one can call good transition from the point of view of Western standards. Rule of law, economic freedom, civil freedom, etc., etc. So initially, it seemed that all the countries of the former Soviet bloc were heading in the same direction, meaning these Western fundamentals. But then the transitions have diverged. And I show you a few data, if I can. A freedom of the press, <clears throat> generally speaking, at least until recently, Central and Eastern Europe countries have achieved Western levels or also Western levels. But if you look at Belarusia or Russia, then you see that this level of the freedom or unfreedom is more or less like in China or Cuba. Rule of law is measured by uh, the World Bank, I think. Huge, the green, the, the higher, the better. Also huge, the huge differences. Civil liberties, the same story, quite a differentiation. Private sector share has increased everywhere, but to the unequal level. And let me make also one additional comment. What matters for the economy is, of course, the share of the private sector, but there is a second dimension, how well it is protected. The best solution is high level of the private sector and equally and well protected. The opposite, there is a, a high level of the private sector which is badly protected in some so-called failed states. And the third variant, if you have pretty high level of the private sector, but very unequally protected, and this is oligarchic capitalism. 
like the one which originated in Russia. So you have a privileged groups of businessmen. You can enjoy all the privileges, including the possibility to take over the assets of less privileged businessmen. Needless to say, this is not a good model, both from the point of view of fairness and from the point of view of economic growth. And there is no surprise that Russian economy under Putin is performing rather badly. Okay. <clears throat> so we have uh, trade openness has increased everywhere, but to unequal extent and for different reasons. In case of Russia, it is mostly based on exports of raw materials. In case of Central and Eastern Europe, which are fortunate not to have abundant raw materials, it is based on exports of more processed goods. Notice, by the way, how close is Brazil? Very close economy. Turkey is much more close than Poland, for example. And this opening has played, opening to the West, has played a very important role in economic performance. <laughs> now there's a huge literature which analyzes the differences uh, in the economic performance of the post-socialist countries. I am not going into it, but let me only note that there are huge differences in the most important synthetic indicator, which is GDP growth. Probably, Ukraine is probably underestimated, certainly is underestimated, but still, it's a huge difference between Poland and present-day Ukraine, even though we have uh, we were at the best, about the same per capita income. Ukraine is now catching up. It's very important that they are successful. <clears throat> so what would be the general transition? Very unequal. <clears throat> as far as changes are concerned, especially in a political system. Secondly, democracy was maintained, established and maintained, at least until recently, in countries which introduced capitalism. And this confirms the former experience that no capitalism or market, private market economy, no lasting democracy. For the simple reason that if you control the economy, you control politics or you may control politics. It's very nice. And also, say if you imagine that you start with a combination of open political competition plus uh, social economy, then after a while, this economy will perform badly, and some people would try to change it by moving to a market economy, and then it would be either banned this would be the end of uh, democracy, or they would be allowed, and this would be the end of socialism. So this is unstable combination. <clears throat> now that all the countries which have moved very little on the economy uh, return to dictatorships, like Belarusia and Central Asia, uh, Asia, but there are also some quasi-capitalist economies like Russia, which proves that you I have a combination of uh, more or less market economy and uh, no democracy, like it's present day in China. But it's a huge mistake to generalize from Chinese example and say, look, this is a successful model. 
because 99% are very bad dictatorship or 90% are very bad economic. Okay, now let me come to the last part of my uh, introduction, which are recent authoritarian transitions. What I meant by that, if the after free elections, this is not because of the coup d'etat, after free elections, and they could be divided into three blocks. The first is, what is it, does it mean a complete authoritarian transition? It means that opposition cannot win elections because it's so limited by laws or by the practical operation of the state apparatus that it cannot win. There are some cases of democratically reverse transitions, bad transitions, including Macedonia. And finally, in Poland, our transition is incomplete, and it can go both ways. It seems to me that the likelihood of reverting to democratic system, fully democratic system, is increasing in Poland. But I cannot, I cannot discuss that. <clears throat> now, I think there is too much generalizations about various bad transitions. There is no one uniting reason for bad, various bad transitions. And there are differences among them. I think the first step in analyzing the various cases has to be distinguish how it was it, how did it happen that the political party or group have won elections, which then tries to introduce an authoritarian transition, has won elections. And secondly, if you want to eliminate democratic competition, what do you do? On the first, this is these two questions which I have asked in my presentation. And again, I think one should, as I said, I give an example. <clears throat> bad transition have started under good economic situation and under bad economic situation. So bad economic situation is not the only reason uh, why bad transition had, may, may start. One should not underestimate factors which did not need to happen, but did happen. We call it usually shocks in economy. So on the, let me give the example of a Polish case. Unexpected victory, not so much parliamentary victory, but presidential victory of the now ruling party in 2015. What were the, these reasons which did not need to happen by happen? Very bad electoral campaign of the then incumbent president, and surprisingly good election campaign of the present president, despite the fact that the letter has presented a very bad program but very attractive in technical terms. So one just cannot underestimate the importance of the technical quality of election campaigns in massive democracies. You have to be very good in a massive democracy to beat the opponent with a bad program. And the bad programs, like sometimes, are easier to sell. And secondly, uh, in the parliamentary elections, there were two parties which uh, barely missed on the opposition side, which barely missed 
a threshold. And this was sufficient for the parliamentary victory of the present ruling party, which is in Polish called uh, peace. Now let me come to <clears throat> once a group which wants to perpetuate itself in power achieves electoral victory, they have at, at disposal three instruments. The, fair one, the first one is clientelism or economic populism. That's typical for some Latin American countries which then uh, spread. So buying support, <clears throat> first by transfers from the budget, and secondly by distributing jobs. And the more, more state organization you have, the more jobs you can distribute. <laughs> and you may nationalize <laughs> to increase this possibility. <clears throat> secondly, this political propaganda by the media, including the capture media, and they may be very, very aggressive and very brutal. And this, in addition, we would have uh, social media. So possibilities have increased. And again, you have to be on the social media to beat populist. And the third, which is the most dangerous, which is taking over the state apparatus, including the potentially repressive parts, like police, prosecutors, Judges, judges are not repressive, but it's the ultimate defense of uh, rule of law <clears throat> to intimidate. And if this instrument is used in a strong way, the bad regime may persist for some time, at least. <clears throat> and the fourth factor after the victory of authoritarians is what is the economic situation. In every country, improved economic situation convinces many people that the rulers are okay, including the US, I think. And uh, if it happens, then for a time being, it strengthens the charm popularity of the authoritarian group. This, has happen this happened until recently in Poland. This happened before in Russia. Putin has won when Russia was at the bottom. And then anybody who governed later would be popular for some time. Oil prices have been increasing, and he's been using this increased popularity to tighten the control until the moment where opposition cannot win election control. So I would say that uh, windfall gains or good luck for bad people is very dangerous for a country, but you cannot control this situation. It happens. <laughs> then you, again, you have to be better on mobilization and on communication. And the last observation, if you look at the whole group of recent authoritarian transitions, including Erdogan, President Erdogan in Turkey, Putin, which I mentioned, to some extent, uh, to some extent, Orban in Hungary and our government in Poland, you see that there are no free marketeers. They are economic populists. It's not always like that. For example, Deng Xiaoping was a liberal uh, <laughs> because he was enlarging 
economic freedom, but the, what is typical of this group, recent cases, is they are, they are populist in the sense that they tend to use the budget for political purposes, and they try to control the supply side of the economy, so reduce economic freedom. Now, this is a brief overview of what's happening in Poland. It's extremely important that the justice system, especially the criminal justice system, remains independent from politicians, including the ruling politicians. Once it is controlled, sooner or later, democracy is finished because using or rather misusing the justice system, the authoritarians can reduce the possibility of the opposition in such a way that they cannot win elections. Look what is happening to Alexei Navalny in Putin's Russia. A very brave man. He's been many times arrested. His foundation has been under control, political and policy control, so that even though the dissatisfaction with the government in Russia is growing, so far opposition is incapable of winning elections, but it's very important that they continue. So this is what happened in Poland, including, and this corresponds with this triad I mentioned, which is clientelism or economic populism, capturing the media, the state media, which should be privatized before, because they are then easier to capture if they are state-owned. On the economy, <clears throat> the growth has accelerated during the last three or four years, but it has nothing to do with their policy during this period. It's first of all due to acceleration of economic growth in the European Union, which comes to an end now, and the doubling of the inflows of Ukrainian workers, which come to Poland, and this is a specific to Poland. And it's not completely clear that it will continue, but because of this end acceleration of structural changes, meaning, among other things, that more peasants migrate from villages to cities and increase their productivity. And this has boosted economic growth, has boosted the tax revenues, and, create, and created uh, possibilities for more spending, which was used, as I said, for political purposes. But at the same time, the supply side of the economy has suffered. And I think a very important indicator is what is happening to the investment ratio. Despite the promises that investment would increase, which is very important for Poland, has visibly declined. And there is no other explanation as that the reason was the increased level, perceived level of risk, political risk in Poland. <clears throat> These are some other indicators. The deficits have not exploded largely because there were increased tax revenues, which uh, then the increase was spent on extra, extra programs. But the, the situation in the public finance remains fragile. 
And finally, what is, I think, most worrisome is the expanding state sector. Even before, there is, uh, before 2016, we have still a larger dose of state-owned enterprises, and the share has increased in two strategic or two very important sectors, which is banking sector and energy sector. So this is an implementation of old-fashioned policy of commanding heights. This is the summary. Well, what we are facing for various reasons, not only domestic reasons, but first of all, external environment, the growth will be slower, and the order started to fall. And civic society is, and this is a very important part, is growing in Poland. So I left to the discussion uh, the questions, what about the next <laughs> in Poland, so that I promise to, promise to speak no, for no more than 25 minutes. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> question, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone and identify yourself and your affiliation. Um, do we have any questions? We have a one, one question here. We need a microphone, please. Up here. Thank you. <clears throat> right. Could you raise your hand, please? Thank you. Thank you. I would like just for you, if you could state. Could you uh, identify yourself and your affiliation, please? Uh, Archibald Hamilton. I'm a researcher. Mm -hmm. So I would like the author, if he can identify two different cases for study. A democracy where populism has, uh, has been studied and a in a dictatorship where populism manifested. Do you understand that? If there is some kind of case you have seen throughout your, your, your research. It's your, I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Could you repeat it, uh, please? Where populism can be studied in two different systems, in dictatorship and in democracy. You want to, examples of populism yeah. under dictatorship and populism under democracy? Yeah, if you have some. Well, you have to start with uh, the definition of populism, because not everything is populist, and populist does not necessarily mean popular. <laughs> uh, the classical definition of economic populism stems from Latin America, Rudy Dornbusch. This is the policy of fiscal stimulation, which can, brings about, if it continues, a fiscal collapse. At the same time, usually it goes hand in hand with damaging the supply side by including, including uh, by increasing politicization. So in this sense, we have some uh, manifestations of populism in the countries I have mentioned after uh, these authoritarian cases of after free, after free elections. You may have also, you may speak of populism when you make a very exaggerated cases about immigration and you present immigrants as evils. So you appeal to very negative emotions. So I would say this is an anti-immigration populism. And this has happened uh, in Poland, unfortunately, recently. 
Yes. Question on the aisle there. John Osler, uh, political uh, researcher. I'm very interested in uh, the EU expanding into the countries that were formerly under the Soviet Union. Especially, uh, we know that Ukraine has had a request in with uh, the EU for several years, since 2015, I believe. Uh, what's the chances that the EU will be expanding into the area formerly under Soviet control? Ukraine has concluded a couple of years ago a comprehensive association agreement with the European Union, which brought about some opening of the markets of Ukrainian products and was associated also with certain conditions regarding uh, reforms, eradication of uh, corruption, etc., etc. I think these agreements are beneficial to Ukraine. I don't think it is very likely that in the com coming years Ukraine would be admitted to the European Union. The chances are the greater, the more successful is Ukraine. So in domestic reforms are the key. And I can only say that the new administration in Ukraine has made some promising measures which were not done before. For example, the promise to end the moratorium of the privatization of land. I think it goes in the right di direction. What are, the, what are the countries in Europe that most concern you in terms of the rise of populism or even nationalism? Well, of course, I am concerned of, uh, about my own country, and this is why I'm active. Yeah. <laughs> in the European Union, I think Italy, because of the economy and of the political situation. And why Italy matters, because it's a large country, and also a potential crisis, economic crisis in Ukraine, would be uh, dangerous to the Eurozone. Even Greece was dangerous to the stability, but if they say large country yeah, like Italy, that was quite a big, big risk. Yeah. Yes, question in the aisle there. Question in the aisle. Could you raise your hand? Thank you. David, Brazil, I'm an economist. You characterized Hungary as an example of authoritarian transition. Can you expand on that somewhat? Well, I am basing as my... To, yes, yes. Why do you characterize it as such? Well, and, first and of I, all, I try to reach, read a massive literature on what is happening in Hungary, and uh, I have some friends which uh, have first-hand knowledge about Ukrainian transitions. Uh, what are the components of the capture? It is, first of all, justice system, as I mentioned. And to my knowledge, the justice system is not completely independent, to say the least. And without that, it's very difficult to expect a fair political competition, which we call genuine democracy. The difference between Hungary and Poland, one of the differences is that so far, fortunately, the present regime does not aim of creating its own oligarchs. 
They are rather aimed at expanding the state sector and to distribute jobs. Why in Hungary, judging from what I can read from reputed reports, they have their, Orban has the, its own, his own favorite oligarchs who tend to win, for example, to get government contracts. Yeah, right here. Hi, Jim Dorn. Uh, glad to see you again. Uh, well, to Cato again. Uh, I've always liked your emphasis on the institutional arrangements and how important they are in terms of economic development and economic freedom. And when you look around the world now, you see what's going on, for example, in Hong Kong, Chile, Peru even, uh, other countries uh, which have had track records for a long time in terms of making progress in terms of rule of law and so on. And things seem to be changing overnight. And uh, I was wondering what your impression of that is and what, what the best defense against uh, that type of change is. Well, I think what is going on in Chile is a confirmation that good model, meaning lots of freedom, economic growth, etc., needs defenses. Because it's not enough to be economically successful to prevail. I am not an expert on Chile. I benefited from the conversation <laughs> I am. And it seemed to me that in Chile you have well-organized groups which are motivated by anti-capitalistic or anti-liberal propaganda, which are not facing enough resistance in the form of communication and appealing to the people, to the masses of people who, compared to what is happening, has been happening in the most of Latin America countries, have hugely benefited. So one cannot overestimate the role of organized defense of good solutions, including communication. This is why I'm so happy to be always in Cato, to be guest of Cato. <laughs> we don't have a battle of ideas. It sounds very good because we know more or less which ideas are destructive and which ideas, if implemented, are productive. We have a battle of communication. And the bad people can win the battle of communication. So we have to be better. That's it. Yes. Uh, Samar Chatterjee, Safe Foundation. Uh, thank you, sir, for taking all this data and democracy and uh, capitalism and dictatorship all over the world to make some sense out of it. And uh, I don't know whether that is. Now, a lot of these, these things are made on judgment. Now, uh, I'll use two examples to ask you a question. United States, I came to United States in 1970. I thought in those days, United States was a lot freer lot better in terms of opportunities and so on. It has deteriorated substantially today. And it's heading towards what probably, in my opinion, what Soviet Union was as a dictatorship. However, the Soviet Union in those days has turned out to be, it collapsed and became some kind of a quasi-democracy or something. You said Putin was using the oil money to make changes. So given that uh, uh, Russia had gone in the reverse direction, are we 
talking about just people getting bored with one system and making changes and then finding out that that doesn't work and then again another system is caused. I mean, this is really, in my opinion, to me, dictatorship or democracy, if they are good for the people, it always works. And after all, the Soviet Union with its dictatorship had stood against the United States and have done reasonably well, even though they were way behind in terms of economy and so on. And the United States has deteriorated. So are we talking about just these are kind of natural cycles that are going to go on? Or, or what, what, are, what is the situation in your opinion? That's a huge question. <laughs> yeah, there are no cycles in history. There are irregularities and accidents and shocks. You cannot explain by any systematic theory something which is largely unpredictable. I would not dare to comment on the US. <laughs> there are enough people who live here. <laughs> If I can only say something that it's extremely important that the U.S. preserves its position as a model. Uh, and the model uh, which U.S. provided is first of all rule of law and economic freedom. And in any country, including the U.S., they may be subject to erosion. I am not predicting that, certainly. I would not predict that U.S. would end in the situation of USSR. We can see that. But, well, have you been to USSR? Uh, no, no, I'm ah, you see. So you don't compare. <laughs> don't compare. It's no comparison. <laughs> no comparison. I can only say that when I compare the U.S. with other cases, when there are problems, I can see that certain key institutions are stronger. For example, when I read that President Trump appeals to the Supreme Court nowadays, yes, regarding whether he has to disclose that this is the rule of law in operation. <laughs> and there are some other key differences. But also in the US, there are tendencies for the erosion of economic freedom and the anti capitalistic uh, propaganda. And this is an illustration, you can see, of uh, pressure groups. They are not only businessmen who want to get some extra privileges. They are artists, intellectuals, who do not understand the essence of freedom. And among various freedoms, we can be divided political, civil freedoms, the, the extremely important, fundamentally important freedom is economic freedom property rights, etc., which are the mostly under attack in the West. It is not fortunately civil rights which are attacked. It is always economic freedom under various guises, in under various slogans, equality, ecology, etc. But it culminates if its freedom is not defended in its erosion. And then you may have a spiral. Economic freedom is limited. Economy starts to perform badly. And those who brought about this erosion call for more state intervention. So it has to be stopped earlier. And you can stop it by better communication. So some countries are <clears throat> better positioned, maybe, like the United States, because of its strong institutions mm -hmm. uh, to resist populist tendencies and populist politics, others not. 
how optimistic are you about Europe, Central Europe, the world? In no, terms, I would not discuss the world. <laughs> no, <laughs> Europe is also too large. <laughs> okay, uh, but it's a tend it's tempting to generalize. But I think it's also important to see the differences. It is easy to focus on the problem cases when demagogy or propaganda seems to be successful. I think Britain, because Brexit was not, to my mind, based on merits, but on extremely demagogic propaganda, which may, may win. And we'll see how successful will be Britain. I mentioned Italy, which is a case of neglected reforms which lead to populism, and then one has to stop the spiral if possible. But I don't see erosion much threat to fundamentals of the liberal democracy in Germany, despite the rise of alternative free Deutschland, but still, it's not very large. I don't, I don't see in Scandinavia and visible attacks on the fundamentals of liberal democracy. I mentioned Poland and Hungary. <laughs> and I, Poland, I think, is a good chance, no certainty, that you will reverse it because of growth in the strength of the civil society. And I hope some expression of solidarity from more mature democracies. <laughs> so the situation is mixed. But what is a seems to be a common tendency across the democratic world, that one neglects the importance of uh, rapid economic freedom. It sounds so prosaic. And they, people don't understand how important it is for things they want, for economic growth and prosperity. And secondly, that is indispensable for well-functioning democracy. So I think well, it deserves a special attention to see to, to, to look, to show to the people how, how important it is and how dangerous are these reductions or erosion in economic freedom. And I think we should take it for granted and work on that, that collectivist, collectivist slogans are emotionally loaded. And before you start economic discussion, look at the language and undermine the populist language. The best by satire, ridicule, collectivist. This is why I'm trying to bring Poland via my Twitter and Facebook. Never accept the populist language, because if you accept, you are lost. And most of the language which used by democracy populists emotionally loaded. And it influences emotions. It's not based on any. Why Marxist was so extremely successful? 19th century was very successful, not scientifically, even though it was called scientific, but politically. It was bad from the very beginning. It was absurd because it was based on absurd assumption that the whole product should go to the worker. Otherwise, it's exploitation. So everybody has exploitation. It was flagrantly false. But why it's successful? Because it was quasi-religion. Emotionally loaded. It indicated who are good guys. Proletariat. Not the workers. Now that they are looking for 
replacement for the workers, and they are called precariat. Then they were chosen people. This was their chosen people, bad people. You have to point out to the enemy. Who are the enemy? They used to be called bourgeois, but they continue to be enemies. They are called now what? Super rich, capitalist, etc., etc. This is based completely on emotions. And then you have to point out to the paradise. Paradise, socialism. Socialism was supposed to be paradise. <laughs> and it worked. Because emotions work and it's easier to produce negative, destructive emotions, destructive for the system based on freedom. So, but this is the fact of life and the only reasonable response to be better. Absolutely. And to be better in using the social media. Yes, in the aisle there. Thank you. Adrian Chervil, retiree. Uh, you were interested, uh, you were talking about institutions. One of the obviously critical things is independence of the judiciary. And just thinking about it, is it easier to maintain an independent judiciary in a code law, sorry, in a common law system than in a code law system? Because of the, in the code law system, it is really essentially part of the administrative structure. Any thoughts? Well, I know there is a research on that, that you have independent judiciary in both systems. You have this independent in Germany, in Netherlands, in Scandinavia, and in Britain. So you don't need to fight for the common law, which is impossible to introduce. Fight the authoritarians. And then you are successful, because they want to capture the justice system in order to stifle the opposition. Two questions there. First, the gentleman on the aisle. Thank you. I'm Leon Weintraub, a retired member of the Foreign Service. You spoke in somewhat positive terms about the Scandinavian countries. You didn't see any threats coming from there. Those who often praise or speak highly of socialism for the United States often point to those countries as models. Uh, are there specific things that w we might learn from them or, or, or do you see some problems that it's working there but it wouldn't work here? Uh, those who mention Scandinavia as a model and live in the US, they don't know what they're speaking about because they, pre they present this is a paradise without explaining why it is a paradise. But if you ask them, that probably they would say it is because of welfare state, large social spending, etc., etc. And this is why I've shown you that United States has already a large welfare state. So what else? They should be asked, what else you recommend in this model? And I don't think they can respond uh, in a convincing way. Besides, even if you have something which is good in a country which has five million people, like Denmark, it's not enough to say, hey, well, let's, uh, let us introduce <laughs> in, in the United States. And the third point that in some respects, for example, Sweden, it's more, how to say, liberal in the European sense than the United States. In what respects? For example, education. 
from my knowledge, I've been following, is Sweden is uh, the country which introduced uh, education bonds, uh, and uh, private firms can compete for this voucher, sorry, education vouchers. What about the United States? I think uh, a teachers' union has been blocking these, these, these innovations. So ask them whether they like in Scandinavia the voucher systems, education voucher system, when they recommend Scandinavia. Now, unfortunately, and this is again something which is unavoidable but has to be resisted, reacted, politicians do not discuss modern physics. They dis 80% they discuss economics. And 60% is a bullshit. Just their slogans. They try to appeal to endurance on emotions. And this way, again, it's like absolutely essential to unmask in such a way it reaches the people. And the same goes, I think, with this model. Anything, you know, it is very non-specific. What exactly? is the Scandinavian model, which has to be introduced in the United States. Yes. Well, then, well, we enter a huge <laughs> subject, but let me say, I think this, most of the debate about inequality is based on confusion. First of all, I want to distinguish between inequality of opportunity and inequality of income. And regarding inequality of opportunity, we know what would be the ideal. Where should they go? To re reduce it as much as possible. But what is the ideal inequality of income? Is it zero? Or is it highest income should be no more than five times low, low income? No, but it's impossible to tell. And third, one should not confuse <coughs> income inequality with fighting poverty. One should fight poverty, elementary poverty. And there are many, some policies, including in rich countries, which enrich the rich without helping the poor. And they are very popular. For example, zoning, restrictive zoning in San Francisco or in London. It raises the prices of real estate. Who benefits? The rich. What about uh, unconventional monetary policy, which is presented as a panacea for everything? <laughs> I understand that it, according to some analysis, it tends to increase the prices of financial assets. Who benefits more? <laughs> Richer people. So I think the reasonable discussion should focus on policies. And then one, and in the, with the idea to identifying and removing bad policies, such policies which enrich the rich without benefiting the poor. And usually there would be policies which also increase competition. So anti-monopolistic policy is one of those policies should be strengthened. Right here. Hello, my name is Letitia Zipperlin. I'm working for the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. My question is, uh, since you pointed out that populism is increasing actually independent from the political system oh, you are looking at, um, we are having uh, problems in Italy, in Germany, in Chile, um, all over the world. 
Um, and you said that the success of populism is probably mainly because of their way they communicate because they have a very easy language. I wanted to ask you, what do you think do people who are in favor of democracy and equality and liberty, should they change their way of communicating? Should they be more emotional in discussions? Should they try to kind of relate to the language of people who um, yeah, want to bring populism forward? Well, I say language matters. I, I am not encouraging defenders of freedom to be equally demagogic as those who want to destroy freedom. <laughs> but they could be better without that in unmasking demagogy. Unmasking, it's very, it, it can be done in such a way that it undercuts to some extent uh, the demagogues. But uh, let me also mention uh, what, what would be one of the important general reasons why anti-market and collectivist communication tends to be successful. Because one of the cliches, I think, which is widely accepted, including mainstream economics, that whenever it is a crisis, it is due to free markets. So how to save? You have to have an enlightened state intervention. It's accepted across mainstream economics, and as a result, across most of the media. And the recent financial crisis has strengthened this, because it has been taken for granted that it was the failure of free markets. Mm -hmm. And what was disregarded? Policies which contributed to the failure of distorted markets. <laughs> so one should strengthen, I think, unmasking this uh, meta uh, prejudice which underlies almost everything in communication. And the second one is inequality, which I tried to say. Inequality and capitalism means crisis. While if you define crisis as a radical deterioration of the economy, then when did you have examples of the most drastic crisis? Under Mao Zedong, a total collapse of the economy and combined with genocides, Stalinism, Fidel Castro, not so drastic, but also corrupt. What is the gravest danger? Concentration of political power, which leads to the possibilities or the risk that this political power will be used for absurd policies. Because by definition, if you have a total concentration of political power, you are not controlled. So the, I think the main uh, problem in social sciences, including economics, is how to wisely disperse or divide political power, which is a classical, classical problem, and then to defend this limited political power. So I think it, it underlies most of other problems. I think you've answered the question partially that I'm going to ask, uh, but that is, what are your priorities in terms of what you're doing with the uh, Civil Development Forum as far as policy priorities or other priorities go for Poland? The first priority is to contribute to the change uh, in political power, meaning elections, free elections. <clears throat> 
and the coming elections. We are not, I'm not directly participating in the elections. I am not competing for any office. But I'm trying with my civil office former, Agatha is managing it, to, influ to influence in a positive way the public opinion by unmasking by populism and lies. This is the first. As far as what I think to, is the most important in Poland, to restore the rule of law. Which means, in practice, depoliticizing institutions of the rule of law. This is in practice. Starting with constitutional tribunal, which was uh, occupied in an unconstitutional way. Prosecution, we discussed, I think, the dangers which are coming from prosecution to the rule of law and justice are under-researched. I am not speaking about misuse of plea bargaining in the US. <laughs> I'm speaking about the dangerous once, once prosecution is being captured. And then you, you, you can harass your opponents and undermine the opposition. That's extremely important to look at. And then finally, the courts, which so far has defended themselves with the support of civil society. And then to reverse these anti-market measures like nationalizations of the banks. Well, I think that that uh, we have what we have time for one more question. So we'll take we'll take one in the back there, please. Question in the back. Could you raise your hand, please? Thank you. Uh, thanks for this excellent talk. Um, my name is Bob Cursoni. I'm a retiree also. And uh, I wonder, do you have some examples of political figures or institutions that are effectively rising to the defense of the values that you're advocating. You mean, I, I know Poland the best. <laughs> and we have many lawyers who defend the independence of the courts. We have uh, an association of independent prosecutors who criticize the present prosecution, and they take certain risk. We have created an association, uh, a, a sort of a forum for the coordination of think tanks in Poland, including the think tank I have created some years ago, to, to, to operate better, to coordinate the defense of the independence of the rule of law. So this, these are the examples. What counts really? Organization and communication. And you can, one can do it. What about businesses and entrepreneurs? Where do they stand? <laughs> Each, each individual entrepreneur is afraid. <laughs> and to some extent, he's correct, because under the regime which can use or misuse, for example, tax administration, why should you risk yeah. your business? But what can be done, I think, is more action from on the part of association of business. Mm -hmm. they, are not, they are trying to do, but still too much, they like to be polite vis-a-vis -vis <laughs> authoritarians. But let me mention that we have foreign investors, including from America, and they behave in such a way as to have peace. <laughs> they could do more via their associations. You know, we have Chamber of American Investors, German, etc. And some years ago, I think three or four years ago, I invited them and told them, look, 
each of them may be, you may be vulnerable. But why, what about common defense? Why don't you create a chapter? This you expect the authorities to respect these rules. They were very happy about the proposal and did nothing, <laughs> which is the problem of collective action. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Your uh, challenge there in Poland is the challenge of so many people who are trying to achieve the same things all around the world. And okay. so your, your talk was very useful to us and I'm sure to people who are listening online and here in the audience today. So please join me in thanking Lesik Balsarovic for his comments. Thank you.